of those 12 million files, there's like more than six and a half million documents, half a million spreadsheets, million emails, and 300 images. Why do you need that many images in your bank account files, dude? I don't. I got one image. It doesn't show much. <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Doogles, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Oh, my goodness. Long, deep breath, huh? I relocated yeah. again. I I had a trip this week. I didn't even, I forgot I had planned. So. <laughs> you just like wake up in the car? Uh, kind of. Yeah, like, like, uh, freak out on Friday afternoon to get all my work done, get the family in the car. <laughs> oh, fair enough. Oh, my goodness. When, uh, when I, we first talked earlier, you said, uh, this was a week where humans struggled with, uh, rationality. Is that what you said? I mean, it, every week humans do that, but yeah, this especially, so much, so much has come out that will hit on. It's just like Gordon Gecko everywhere. Greed is good, man. Uh, I'm going to disagree with you there, but. Speaking of, I guess maybe this is the opposite of greed. Your boy, because he's a dookie, Kyrie Irving, you know what he's got going on right now? Not much basketball in the, in the city of New York. That's for sure. Man, can I, can I reset on this? Because I find this is, not a, this is not a vaccine talk. I just find this whole thing fascinating from like a human level. So he apparently is not vaccinated. He makes 30-some million dollars a year. And the state of New York has a mandate that you can't be in the basketball arena if you're not vaccinated. Like, it's just for fans, for everybody. So right now, his team, who might be the favorites to win the NBA title, are practicing at home without him. They did some preseason stuff, like out in Vegas. The whole team was together, including him. Then they came back to their home stadium <laughs> to do some <laughs> practicing games, and he was just not there. And right now... They're debating how they might handle that for the entire season. Is this not the craziest thing you've ever heard? I mean, they're they're in New York. They should just do this straight street ball and hit up the hit up that playground on Fourth Street. That that's that's oh, I, I mean, I, Would you go see? You go watch. Say Rocker Park, man. Yeah, they, oh, yeah just outdoors. Well, so um, what's funny is Steve Nash, the coach, got asked like, "Are you guys going to relocate?" to allow to like jersey or something to allow Kyrie to practice and he's like yeah. no this is like our home <laughs> this is our home arena this is our home. Like, <laughs> so how much is he how much is he giving up a game uh three hundred eighty thousand dollars per game he misses and right now he would have to miss at least half the season because those there's half of the season is home games and then there's other arenas or states or whatever like i think toronto maybe la that he would not be able to play in as well. I don't think the Bay Area he could play in. Can you imagine, man? Like, if your job is this and just... I mean, <laughs> United Airlines said that people need to get vaccinated, right, to keep their jobs. Yeah. And people were all over it for, I don't know, you know, whatever, 60, 70 grand a year, whatever they're making, you know, good, good, healthy salaries. Kyrie is willing to give up almost 400 grand a game. Per game, per game, man. To me, when I thought about giving up 400K, which obviously I wouldn't be doing, 
I was like, if I could easily give up, and really it'd be for the whole season, let's just call it like 16 million bucks. If I could easily give up 16 million bucks, that means I'm overpaid, in my opinion. <laughs> I can't disagree with that. I mean, is there a, is or, there a better? <laughs> or his conviction is that strong. I don't well, know what his... On the positive side, I will say that strong conviction because as soon as someone like put, I don't know, 400 bucks in front of me i'd be like what do i have to do <laughs> yeah what do do? <laughs> tell me tell me anything you're what like the people who that fear factor I, like i'll, yeah, I'll yeah, eat yeah. spiders how many how many snakes are you dropping on top of me in this cage <laughs> for 400 bucks oh man yeah there's something i don't know if it's irrationality rationality but that's a thing just the thought about giving up that much it's it's a thing it's a thing what, what's it what's in your fishbowl to kick this thing off all right so I want to talk. I want to get your opinion specifically on this tweet. It says it is bad for society that it's easier to invest millions of dollars in an NFT, non-fungible token, than a startup. Thoughts? The startup investment regulation, like philosophy and the way it's implemented, is quite nonsensical. So I, I'd broadly agree with that point. Like generally. The, the big question or a big question that it raises is what is what kind of behavior does that cause? Yeah, well, I want to get to the behavior piece, but I think uh, my pet peeve, I can tell like you've been through that raising money for a startup piece and it annoys you. The thing that annoys me is the classification for accredited investors, which is yeah a similar nonsense. It's just this random arbitrary value of net worth or income per year. And I would say that investments that accredited investors could make, or even well-educated people about startups, make more sense and are, in most cases, more logical and rational than buying an NFT. And so what I see happening here is kind of this, there's tons of money out there. I watched a documentary on the Fed this week, and it As really hammered on yeah, it hammered on a lot of the uh, things we discussed with James McIntosh, but things we constantly discussed on the show about quantitative easing one, quantitative easing two, and basically how there's so much money out there that is looking for a home, and it's finding a home in riskier assets like junk bonds, but it also appears to be finding a home in riskier cryptos and non-fungible tokens associated with blockchain technology with an image, and all these other things. And I guess for me, this tweet just hammered that home. It's like there's money out there that is finding a home and it's finding a home in nonsensical, non-valuable things that don't have cash flows when it could be finding a home in companies that actually have maybe in some cases it's a small percentage chance, but some chance of turning into real wealth long term. So I'm going to I'm going to hop on piggyback off that in one second. Before I get to that, there were a couple of responses to this tweet that I was just like, it misses the whole point. So Sam Altman sends out this tweet. It's Sam Altman of Y Combinator sends out this tweet. And there's a couple of things that folks said. Why don't we invest in startups through NFTs was one <laughs> reply. Another, what if investing in an NFT equals investing in a startup? <laughs> what? Like, what, is, what does that even mean? Anyway, so to, to, I'm going to go into some listener mail. Uh, to piggyback off what you just said. So we had Henry this week sends in some listener mail. And what he sent in was this Vice article 
that's called investors spent millions on evolved ape nfts now there's actually four more words in the title of this article i'm going to re reread the first part of it and you tell me what those four words are so i'm going to reread this investors spent millions on evolved apes nfts what are the next four words uh scam that's one yeah, that's, that, that's one word <laughs> that's that's <laughs> one word but you got you got you got 25 right <laughs> then they got scammed are the next then they got scammed there then they go. got scammed so this is a vice article and we can skip through all the detail of it because you kind of get most of it from the title there were there's this evolved apes organization let's call it a good uh, organization that was selling nfts of what you can imagine are apes yeah uh, and what they were they were building this game like an ape fighting game and so they were taking yep. on investors through these nfts got over two million dollars right that was put into it and then surprisingly to everyone <laughs> they disappeared okay so the thing i think i like most about this article is so this happens right and they disappear and it, it, it sucks when people like lose their money like this right? Flat out. Sucks. The scam sucks. So what the folks did was they then revolted and created an anti-ape organization. And they appointed the leader of this organization, one Mike Crypto Bull. <laughs> this sounds like Lord of the Flies or something. <laughs> yes. or, there were some uh, Fight Club references in the article, but I've got Lord of the Flies <laughs> yeah. based on that yeah. description. It, but so I'm, I'm basically just going back to what you were saying when when there's money out there and it's just looking for whatever. And this goes back to the point of where risk seeking as opposed to risk taking, which naturally happens in investing. People are looking for all kinds of things, including evolved apes. Oh, no, well, actually, sorry, JPEGs of evolved apes. No. So I had questions. I, I skimmed through this article and I probably missed it, but, but fill me in on some facts here. So one, they bought the ape, the NFT of the ape. They still technically own the NFT of the ape. So that piece of the scam did not really happen. Like they still technically own that ape, right? No, well, not, not only that, yes. And not only that, but so this whole thing was, uh, came off was like, it's a scam, right? Everyone knows it's a scam. Rug pulled out from underneath all the investors. After that, there's still $50,000 worth of these things that have been sold. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, well, so, no, so, so, yes. First, they, if, if you call this artwork, they still own the artwork. What the, the scam kind of is the game. Um, yeah, is the game. But that leads me to another thing that I saw either this week or last, which I think is hilarious. And it was someone breaking down. We've all been, we've all run software projects in the professional world, right? And they almost always are over budget and they almost never are on time. And effectively, a lot of these crypto token development things, or even if it's like an NFT blockchain based game, it's a software project, a lot of times run by volunteers for free. And the point was, people in the crypto space are trusting these technology roadmaps as if they're actually going to come true. <laughs> and they never come true in real life. So they broke down on some recent examples. I'll try and find this and put it on the Twitter, at Skippy Tiggles. But it was like, this coin jumped 200% based on this technology roadmap that we all know is never going to come true. But looks, it's a really fancy PowerPoint slide. But if uh, it that's does, another sign. 
But if it does, yeah. <laughs> but if it does, it's not going to come true. But if it does, yeah. No, that, well, that that's funny. If, that, if that's you, really. If you funny. got money, yeah, I mean that you're looking to park somewhere, uh, buy some apes. It's funny. I saw those apes when they first went crazy because that was when we did the breakdown on the hundreds thing, uh, the NFT yep. things yep. for the Bomb Squad, which is street art out of LA. If you guys are interested, and they got they rode that wave, and it seemed. I mean, they're cool looking, but it never seemed super legit. Just browsing through them. I wonder if they'll get that scam money back or not. Do you wonder? Not really. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, that's that's my larger point or my larger question, and I, I could dive back into the article, but um, it's like, what what is the scam here? Is it this technology roadmap of the game that they never delivered on? And then what would be, like, effectively the legal ramifications of being like, well, we were going to do this, but then we didn't. Yeah, I, don't, I actually a, don't know what contractually... I, I have no idea. How I don't. That, there's no. Know. I mean, I think you know that, Douglas. There's no contract here. This was like, uh, this is what we're gonna do. Give us your money, and then a bunch of people gave them their money, and then they said, "We're not doing that anymore." I, I don't know what level of scam this is. I I'm not trying to make light of it, and I feel bad for the people that got taken. But only Mike Crypto Bull can shed light on the situation. Well, I did like Mike Crypto Bull and some others have effectively said like. We'll just make our own game. Like we like this idea, we're gonna make it happen, and there's no reason why it can't in my eyes. So hopefully, it ends up more valuable for them long term. I'll keep my fingers crossed <laughs> what, on that one. What kind of? <laughs> <laughs> you were you were putting all your hope in all the wrong places. <laughs> okay, I'm 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 hopping back into the fishbowl from this greed is good train. What do Shakira, Claudia Schiffer? And the King of Jordan, all have in common. Um, something with their hips. <laughs> Maybe that's unverified. I can't, <laughs> I, can't, I can't verify that. Maybe what they all have in common is that they have offshore companies that are trying to hide money for them. Apparently, oh. yeah. according to the Pandora Papers, you read about these papers. This stuff, sometimes I have a hard time reading about because it, it gets so depressing to me. Enlighten me, please. Uh, back in 2016, the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists had came out with the Panama Papers. So they, they like the alliterations is, what the, is what's going on here. The Panama Papers were documents from one offshore service, right? That was people were going through in order to create these offshore companies. These papers showed over $11.3 trillion that are sitting in offshore companies because they went through 14 offshore services. So basically what they did was they got millions and millions, like 10 million plus uh, confidential files. And then they got journalists from all around the world. So journalists from all sorts of, of different institutions. And they had to do that because of where all the companies are, right? So they could be able to get access to the data. So all these journalists went through this treasure trove of papers. And it's from these 14 offshore services to look at who's hiding money where. And it's just, it's it's really, I don't know, phenomenal. I don't know what else to call it. This web yeah. that's been created and the types of people that are involved. They have, there were like oligarchs in, uh, in Russia, right? Then you've got Shakira with her, as you pointed out, she has unlying hips, but apparently she's got lying bank accounts. <laughs> and it's $11.3 trillion. Now what they can't, 
like what they don't know because they just see like the data here they don't know how much of this is i'll call it legit versus not legit and by legit meaning that in order to do your international like transactions maybe you just needed like this offshore account and it's not something that you're trying to use for tax evasion but you i would assume that you've got to make some kind of a leap that says that most of this is i've got my money in the US and their tax rate is 38%. And so I want to move it to a place where the tax rate's lower. And so therefore I have my offshore account. Yeah. You have to assume a lot of it's that, but the, yeah, that's, and it's not just, it's not just cash sitting in bank accounts. Like what they're doing is they're putting this money in these offshore accounts and then buying a bunch of homes in like Malibu, like the King of Jordan owns like 16 yeah. houses in like Malibu, right? I want to Airbnb one of those houses, shoot. But it's, this is, greed is good. Greed is good. So friend. here's the stats, right? Three terabytes worth of data, almost 12 million files from 14 different sources. Of course, of those 12 million files, there's like more than six and a half million documents, half a million spreadsheets, million emails, and 300 images. Why do you need that many images in your bank account files, dude? I don't. I got one image. It doesn't show much. <laughs> well... I part of me thinks it's unfortunate that the world tax codes have evolved to a place where they're so complex that you can dodge things this way. And I'm sure there's blame to go around. Is, is that your conclusion? That's my conclusion. <laughs> Skippy says, I'm sure there's blame to go around. I This is not, it's not like one event, right? That causes this. This is years and years of uh, looking at tax codes there was one law firm, I didn't write down the name, that seems like it's behind creating a lot of, or maybe I shouldn't say creating, but like lobbying for a lot of the regulation that allows for a lot of this like to, to happen at least uh, in the US. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it is, but it is what it is. It is what it is. Like, I know my takeaway here is kind of like, eh, but like, what are, what are we supposed to do? I mean, do we prosecute these people or something? No, I, I think that's I think that's a good question. I uh, my takeaway from stuff like this is largely just visibility to a certain extent. Awareness is a good first step um, for us to figure out if there's something that would make sense to do here. Uh, but it for me, it by itself is what it is. Maybe visibility awareness. It's mixed in with all this other stuff that we're seeing right now, you know, that you're talking about, like you got money. It's got to go somewhere that we're just we're at this place where money is this fluid concept almost right now that's just kind of can i take a side tangent on that a little bit um this documentary on the fed featured the president of the minnesota fed fed prominently and it had the usual line of questioning with like hey you put all this money into the economy and the people that really benefit are the people that hold stocks and the people that own homes and so you're completely screwing everyone else. His argument, which I've thought about a lot over the past three days, is if you don't own stocks and you don't own homes, then your most valuable asset is your job. And we're going to do everything in our power to make sure that there's a job available to you. So he says, all the unintended consequences of making the 1% incredibly wealthy or, you know, the the wealthiest Americans incredibly or more wealthy and that contributes to that widening gap between rich and poor. I don't care. That's collateral damage. 
and helping the poor. Could you please tear apart that argument for me? So I, I, I have to take him out of the role of, you know, being a governor, of the Fed for a sec, because yeah. then because there's like, what is the job of the Fed? I think is a, is a question that you then have to answer. But if I if I take that hat off of this, this gentle person and just say, let's just take that line. I don't know what Schmigadoon means, but it it, that's, it makes me want to say Schmigadoon a whole bunch, I guess is what I'd say. Because going back to this concept that 81%, I guess, we found of economists disagree with around R is greater than G, yeah. right, from, um, from capital. If you're saying that the G is always going to be less than the R, meaning that what you get from labor will be always less than what you get from capital than somebody that's saying, well, if labor is the thing that you own, we're going to make sure labor happens as opposed to saying, if labor is the thing, the only thing that you can own, let's figure out how you can get into G you're perpetuating the issue. Yeah, I mean, that's, but again, I don't, what's, what's the role of the fed, right? What is the role of the fed in, in that it's difficult to. to yeah. Answer. Well, I do want to briefly reset on R greater than G because I don't think we've, if you're a new listener to the show, we haven't defined that. What Diggles is really talking about there is um, return on capital, meaning like typical investments, whether it's uh, housing or equities or whatever else, versus the growth of, was it too simplistic to say labor wages, Diggles? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's So there's a the hypothesis out there that in, in well-developed economies, the return on investments might always or largely be greater than the return on like your wages. And if that's the case, there's significant ramifications there because it widens that wealth gap. So point being, what frustrates me about that statement, and I'm not even sure that that statement's wrong, is that it seems to say you can't help one without helping the other. And it seems like if you say your job is to get the poorest of the poor jobs, by all means, like go do that. But there should be a way to do that without giving like millions and millions of dollars to the people sitting in their vacation homes in the Bahamas doing nothing. I, I don't and think those things have to go hand in hand. Agreed. And uh, and this also gets to there was something that you sent to me earlier this week showing the impact on inflation on different income groups. If nothing else. I think there's broad, I'll call it agreement, that the job of the Fed is on one hand to control inflation, on the other hand, to control employment rate. Like if nothing else, those are, and they do that through money supply effectively. Yep. If, if protecting your job is, you know, the, the, that's the thing, that's the righteous move that we're making. But if the inflation, if the, the way we're controlling inflation actually has a broader impact on the poor anyway, and you can hit, hit on some of the stats, I think that you sent over, do you have it in front of you? Yeah, so that's uh, Charlie Bellello on Twitter. I'm probably saying that wrong. Sorry, Charlie. And this time last week, Dougals, you talked about rents rising on average 16% in the last year. And he's just simply saying, well, in a high inflation environment, inflation hits the poorest the hardest. And the stats he uses to break that down is uh, the percent of income used on basic goods if you make less than 40k a year right so 
If you make more than 40K a year, you spend like 7% on groceries. If you make less than 40K a year, you spend almost 10% on groceries. On rent, if you make less than 40K a year, you spend as much as 14% of your uh, pre-tax income on rent. If you make above that threshold, it can be, looks like it's less than 6%. So the point being just your basic necessities and good take up a larger piece of the pie. And so the I go back to the guy at the Fed being like, well, who cares if we're printing all this money? We're giving people jobs. Well, if you're giving people jobs that make less than 40K a year and inflation is running out of control because of all the money you're printing, you're actually, you might be hurting their purchasing power in a way. Like, I, I'm not convinced that it's a slam dunk that the Fed has helped the poorest of the poor. When I watch that video of the Fed guy yeah. saying this, just the hand movements, you know that it was like, whatever's about to come out of your face is so pre-scripted. <laughs> well, to be, I... fair, <laughs> to be fair, he said, I get these questions all the time and I'm sick of these questions. He also said, and, and if you want to dive in, guys, this is a PBS Frontline documentary called, like, Don't Fight the Fed or something. It came out this year. Um, he also said, the only people that ever ask about income uh, inequality and the wealth gap are people on Wall Street. When I talk to congressmen and senators that represent uh, the poorest district of our country, they don't talk about this. They say, get my people back to work. And it's just like, I think you're missing a lot of key pieces to this puzzle, man. I really do. Oh, man. I keep having to woosa. All right. Yeah. So okay. that's my rant. Get me on to something else. Go somewhere I'm gonna else double. I'm going to double dip fishbowl here for the first thing I'm going to hit on is the least surprising piece of greed, probably to come out. And the second thing is not, I'm not going to say it's the most surprising, but it's like just an interesting little story anecdote that I'll walk you through. So the first thing, the least surprising is Robin Hood. Let's go back to our friends at Robin Hood. We're going to have to, we're going to have to hop in our time machines and go back. When was this? Eight months ago, back to January, what was happening? You give a recap of what was happening in January from a meme stock perspective. Retail traders went crazy. It's the same. Too much money out there trying to find interesting things to invest in and taking risk. And there's a Reddit stock movement that people claim is driven by social media. I think there's that's one element to it. And like GameStop went, went what from less than 10 bucks a share to 400 bucks a share in a very short period of time. We cover GameStop in early episode, episode five, maybe something like that. Yeah. If you want to go back and, and listen to that one. So exactly right. Wall Street bets on Reddit sends these meme stocks to the moon. All this is happening on the, the flip side of that. You've got Robinhood, which was having a liquidity crisis basically at the time because Robinhood it didn't have enough cash to be able to cover potentially what it might need to, to cover uh, from trades that were happening on the platform. And so what Robinhood did was it shut down trading in some of these meme stocks. And it wasn't just Robinhood. Um, there were, I think, like a Fidelity. There are a couple others that had to do this too, right? But yep. Robinhood was having liquidity issues, had to shut things down. So during that time, there was controversy about that anyway people are like i need to i want to get my money i don't want to make or i want to put my money in whatever i want to yeah. like i i want to i need to trade what has come out is that the president and coo 
of Robinhood during this time sends a chat. So this is an internal chat. I don't know what they use, but let's just imagine Slack or something. Yeah. An internal chat that says, I sold my AMC today. FYI, tomorrow morning, we're moving GameStop to 100%. So you're aware. To zoom out and say what this means is they, they, had, they knew that they were shutting down trading in these stocks. So the day before, the president and COO of Robinhood sells his ish. Yeah. Which, if there's anything that is not public material information, I think that it is that. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he sold it. So, like, that's bad move, right? You sold on this information. Then you chatted to others that you did it and FYI'd them. Yeah, of what to, was coming to get in, in and make a move before there's other ramifications. This is a really bad look, really bad look. It's I can't even think of like a non-investing analogy, but when you hold the cards to so much movement of money and you're trading based on that, I go back to our friend James McIntosh, right? Before he came on the show, he made sure that there were no pump and dump schemes happening on the show. Then on the show, when we talked about how he invests his personal wealth, he said, I would never invest. I would never front run an article of mine that makes an investment hypothesis in the Wall Street Journal. People like that have more integrity than, than leaders of really exactly. important businesses in this country. It's sad. Man. It's sad. And, and I keep going back to, to what end? Does he need a few extra bucks? I think Robin is probably going to do all right. There's going to be legal action associated with this, I would sure hope, because it seems to lay it out fairly obviously that you're breaking the law and bragging about it. Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, I don't know what the counter argument is <laughs> like to this. This seems very straightforward, but, you know, they got expensive lawyers, I'm sure. So we'll see. What's crazy, though, is it's like a different twist on material non-public information than you'd almost ever see. Usually it'd be I have some I have information about like acquisition or troubled debt refinancing or some other thing. And this is like, no, I'm just going to turn off the spigot so no one else can invest here. Um, and I'm going to make uh, eh, frustrating stuff. Yeah, we talk about yeah. this stuff way too much. I don't think. When we first started the show, there'd be so much like, come on, people, just be decent humans. All right. Decent human. You want a decent human? Yeah. Let's roll with it. So are you familiar with Aussie media? No. Exactly. So Aussie is, oh, nay, was perhaps this new age kind of media company. So they did like their fancy conferences and their podcasts and their YouTubes. You know, I mean, it's all, you know, the, all that stuff. Like you basically have... Yeah. Um, their CEO is this guy, Carlos Watson. He's like a Goldman McKinsey alum, very charismatic, right? That, that kind of CEO okay. um, has a lot of sh showmanship. Um, so he's the face of Aussie media, creates his media company. They've raised lots and lots of money, tens of million dollars, you know, um, over the last few years. I think they started in 2013, so about eight years old. Huge audience, 20 million newsletter subscribers, millions and millions and millions of views on YouTube, right? I'm painting this picture for you, right? So they're... Yeah. They're big. Earlier this year, Aussie Media was raising money, and they were trying to raise money from Goldman Sachs. You're familiar? Very familiar. Okay. So there's this conference call uh, between Goldman Sachs and the, the head of unscripted programming at YouTube, Alex Piper. The point of this call is for Goldman to do some due diligence, to so just be like, 
there's this big personality on YouTube. Um, Carlos Watson has this show, like just basically check the box and let us know that like all's well in the world. So they set up this call. They set up the Zoom and Alex Piper, as the Zoom's coming on, uh, emails the group and says, um, I'm having some trouble like logging into Zoom. Can we just do a conference call? Okay. Yeah, no problem. Like this happens, right? Sometimes you're yeah. like, just, just call me. Yeah. yeah, so sure. So they hop on. Alex does what you'd expect during this time, I think, you know, if, if all is well, it's like, oh yeah, Carlos is great leader, super charismatic, yep. like knows how to do all this stuff, checks all the boxes. But during the Zoom, the folks at Goldman were like, something sounds kind of weird. Like there's just, there's something that's kind of off. Like it, it's, it's like, a, is the, is the voice like a real voice? Like it was just something seemed wrong. So afterwards, they, they reach out to YouTube. I think they went through, um, through Alex Piper's Wait, assistant. Can I predict what is going on here? Did, <laughs> Go did, for it. He, did he play both roles? Was he pretending to be the guy from YouTube so he's a good guy? Well, who pretended is, is a question, but yes, there was pretending. So the, the claim <laughs> is that it was the, it was the COO of Ozzy Media that used a like <laughs> digital voice alter alterator, <laughs> right? So, but so after the call, the folks at Goldman, they reach out to YouTube through um, Alex Piper's assistant and said, cause there was an email address they were going back and forth with. And apparently this yeah. email address was not real. And so they reached out through the assistant and said like, can we talk to Alex Piper? Alex hops on and he goes, I don't know who you people are. I've never talked to any of you, right? <laughs> So, I should laugh, man. I so as I know, so as they're, but as they're like digging in deeper, it turns out I'm going to say everything was fake. It, it's not quite everything, but to the extent of the size of all this stuff, like wasn't real. And so they're digging into numbers and they're seeing that when you look at the views of the YouTube videos, they're so big, but the number of comments were small. And if you look at the ratio that is typical among YouTube videos, like that's just not the way that works. And so, yeah, it turns out they were spending just lots and lots of money on getting like views and they were spending they're spending money on things like I didn't even realize that this was a thing, but it makes sense. It's like a behind the scenes uh, web browser pop up where like you can open a page without the browser knowing you're opening a page yeah. that gives you views. Yep. So they're spending money on all this stuff to to have this image of this big media company that did not slash, I think as of this talk like does not exist anymore it's unfortunate i'm not trying to spend the whole episode like throwing shade or casting stones because i'm far from perfect but like oh, this stuff just makes you makes you shake your head let me tell you it, it ties in i wasn't planning on talking about this this week the president of the chicago fed charles evans went on uh, cnbc and he said we follow the ethical guidelines and the code of contact conduct which is actually quite tough turns out someone went through the code of conduct for the fed and there's a voluntary guide for conduct for senior officials <laughs> <laughs> i mean you can't make this stuff up it, and it's just around every court these days and this ties on if you guys if the listeners didn't make it through last week's show of two fed officials that were trading way too much and have resigned uh because of it and and clearly using special information they received at, with their relationship to the fed to do that so our rules are tough every corner and they're voluntary yeah they're, they're really tough let me tell you if you <laughs> volunteer if you volunteer to follow them man they're tough 
you know, you know, one thing I, I really enjoyed was uh, you shot over this uh, statement. You t- I don't know what this is from exactly, but from David Einhorn that I'd love to chat about for, for a couple minutes in light of all this other stuff that we're saying that there's stuff being faked, there's greed everywhere, um, investments people are making are seemingly nonsensical. Can you yeah. hit on what our yeah, boy David um, talks about? Really, all the stuff we've been talking about, he talked about how crazy the market is and ties it back to value investing, uh, at least the way I read it, which is really important. So he talks specifically about Dillard's and says that they've owned Dillard's for a number of years um, with Greenlight Capital. And that registers for me because I used to own Dillard's. I just didn't hang with it as long as he did. And Dillard's had a really, like, really poor performance um, through COVID, especially at the start of COVID when all the retailers got crushed. But the story with Dillard's, at least back when I owned it, is it was profitable. It wasn't exciting. And they were buying back shares like crazy. And it's pretty much a family-owned business, um, family and employees. What happened is it did a whole bunch of nothing for a very long time. And then... Eventually, it shot up. He says 600%. I'm not sure if that math is exactly right, but it went from something around 30 bucks a share to 200 bucks a share, which I guess is 600%. And he wraps with just talking about how he's trying to stay too, true to his investment philosophy, even though it seems like all the people making money, all the people making significant money right now are either doing it in cryptos, which don't have solid cash flows behind him or stocks like tesla which also don't have solid cash flows behind him yeah and i i i love the way he wraps this which in some ways feels like kind of sad that that there's so many ifs in this statement but i still i love this it says the way i look at it now is there's an off chance that owning a share of stock still represents a proportional ownership in the cash flows and profits of that company and on that off chance, I'm positioned to do very well if that proves to be the case. Yeah, it's a great statement. I don't know why he's saying there's an off chance. To me, that's a certainty. Now, Bill, the he, he may have been reward, saying it sarcastically. If this was, yeah. if he's actually saying it live, who knows what the tone was? But yeah. I, I think I think there must be some sarcasm there. He clearly believes that, and that's clearly the right perspective. And when I talk to the crypto fans, which it seems like I talk to all the time now. That's always the thing I say is like, well, what are the cash flows behind that? What's the true value of that asset? With Dillard's, you can actually do that, you know? And Greenlight Capital for years and years, I think he said like six years they owned it. They could actually do a valuation based on profits of that company, cash flows of that company, and say, we think it's worth X amount. And it's trading at a discount to that value. If you're invested in assets that you can't do that analysis on, I do, it's tough to sleep at night. Ooh, we are in some wild times. We're in some wild times. We are. So, yeah, the last thing I've got is I haven't, so I haven't bought anything this year uh, since like very early in the year, since I uh, started dabbling in, in the commodity situation, right? Um, and usually I actually don't buy much <laughs> during the year, but these past two years bought a lot, like 2020, I bought a lot during the year and, and 2021 haven't bought uh, much since early in the year. 
But there's one company that I, I've been looking at for a little while now. So maybe like close to a couple of years, maybe like 18 months, maybe since like the beginning of last year. Um, and I think I might pull the trigger. This is a this would be more of a long term hold for me, potentially if I pull it, but wanted to talk it through with you. Company's called uh, Stone Co. Limited. Have you heard of it? Okay. No, I'm firing up Morningstar though. Yeah, you are. Um, so it's a uh, the the high level way to think about it is it's kind of like Square based in Brazil. And so it's getting Brazil right now is is it even a country? Right. Like it's, it's so <laughs> there's a lot going on in Brazil. So the stock's getting, getting hit. It's a, it, this is a, it's a growth stock, right? Like flat out, this is a growth stock, but let me throw out some figures for you. Okay. Sure. Um, and there's stuff that you will hate about this, like the free cash flow. You'll not like, you won't like the amount of debt they have, but some of the things I think that, that uh, you might like, but you don't have to, cause I'm thinking about investing in it, but that I think you might like. So it's $33 a share, roughly a little bit over 30, $33 a share right now. The cash this company has is almost $12 billion, but that's 30, almost eight, $38 per share in cash they have. Okay. Book value per share is almost $49 per share. It was sitting months back. It was sitting at like sometime late last year, I think, or mid last year, sitting around 90 something dollars a share. So it's lost like about two thirds of its value um, over the past, the past year. So I'm looking at this thing. I think it's a, it's a, it's, it's a, like, I don't know. It's fascinating largely because, um, so I used to own, uh, shares of square. I don't anymore. Um, I might get back into that at some point if share square ends up dropping, but I've been watching them as has been thinking about, we've talked about emerging markets a good amount. And so I was looking at, uh, at companies, analogous companies to stuff that, that I think I'd want to own in the U S but in emerging markets, this is one that popped up for me. And so I've been watching it and the place where it's sitting right now, I'm like, if I was going to get into this thing, this seems like some ratios that are favorable. So, yeah. Okay. So I'm definitely intrigued, which is why I'm silent over here. Cause I'm looking at some figures. Did I hear you right? That you said it's currently trades at $33 a share and how much cash do they have? Almost $38 a share. So that's a no brainer, right? It does. Have, it has $9 billion in debt. $12 billion in cash. And so like there is, uh, there, there's debt. So the enterprise right? value. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Enterprise market value. I so, know. I, I mean, it's not, that, that, right that's why I, I was like, yeah, it's the debt. Okay. Yeah. That, that, that's why wrong. I said there are some numbers you wouldn't like. I skipped those numbers to, to start off with during the sales pitch. Um, Here's my investment hypothesis. Let's forget all the debt. and Let me tell you about the good things. <laughs> Yeah, but it's a my my point broadly. It's a growth stock, like like flat out. It is. They're just it's like hit these ratios now and debt fueled cash. So there's that. But at these ratios now, that I'm like, ah, if I were thinking about getting in, like I'm starting to think about it. So I haven't pulled the trigger. I'm still contemplating as to whether this is the price or not. But I wanted to talk that through with you. Well, so one, it's based in the Grand Caymans, so there's no fraud that ever happens there. <laughs> no, it is based in Brazil. Well, ignore, no, sorry, ign- their headquarters. Their ignore the paperwork. <laughs> uh, two, uh, is there anything interesting in the 10K? Uh, when you say anything interesting, what do you mean? Oh, it's an know. interesting did business. Anything jump off, did anything jump off the page at you? Um, well, just uh, if you go back to like it's the, the square of Brazil, I, I think it's business. It's the story, right? It's business is interesting. So they started off uh, in the POS space, the point of sale system space. So yeah. to small businesses, um, they're not a bank by any means. So it's they don't have like locations. 
right? Any of that stuff going on. They're basically trying to say, how do we take the banking industry of Brazil? Um, Cause they're not going global worldwide right now. And how do we bring that into purely digital? Um, that is, that's the, that's the place they're, they're trying to get to. Um, and so it's largely, it's a, as I mentioned, it's a growth stock. It's a narrative play, right? It's the story. Yeah. Can they do this in Brazil? Can they then take it outside of Brazil and actually be, I don't even know. It's once you get to a certain point, analogies start to fall apart. Like when you say, like when I say it's the square of Brazil, but then once you get outside of Brazil, isn't there just square? Like, so it, it becomes a, it becomes a thing, but anyway, but I'm looking at it. So I just wanted to, I want to talk it through with you because I've been following it for a while and I put on a, uh, a Yahoo price alert for like a price that seemed, seemed ridiculous insane. at the yeah. time. And then the thing went off and I was like, Whoa, like I haven't, I haven't looked at you in a little while here. And so, uh, so it popped back up and brought it on for discussion. I mean, the growth is really fun here. Like just top line revenue is almost up 10 times in the past five years. It's pretty cool. I it's it's new for my taste, meaning it just went public in 2016, but yeah. I could get comfortable with that in the right situation. I don't know why I have this, like this is a me problem, but when it I haven't seen a company have like positive cash flows or turn consistent profits, I always am so skeptical about it because I think actually flipping that switch is a really, really hard thing to do that people people undervalue how hard it is. It's not necessarily hard to grow your top line revenue. Uh, you could just be in a, a space that's growing like crazy. And if you're the square of you would be because everything's switching to that digital commerce and you're enabling that. But then to actually turn a profit, to me, it's just one of those things that I almost have to see it before I can get comfortable investing in the company. Yeah. Well, it makes sense. You, you got to stick to your, to what you're comfortable with in your own investment philosophy. And that's like, as we've talked about more important than many other things. And I told you what I tell you, I said, there are two things that I know that you will not like. I, I didn't even think about the grand Cayman. So there's probably three, but I said, there are two <laughs> things you won't like. It's the debt and the cash flow. Yeah. I know you no, won't you like it. it. Um, but they, they, but they yeah. do have, Gosh, so I don't know if this is helpful or not, but off the cuff, I'd like to dive into the 10K and figure out their philosophy with the debt. Because with that much cash available to them, why are they using debt to finance operations? Or is that a legacy thing? Actually, let me look at one metric here. Are they paying down their debt? Interesting stuff. I love that you brought it up, Diggle. See, yeah. they're actually... Oh, something huge happened in 2017 where they took on a bunch of debt. And since then, they've been, looks like they've been pretty good at managing it. I'll, I'll do a deep dive. Yeah. And I'll let you know where I, because I haven't, I haven't decided what I'm going to do, but, uh, but it, it triggered and I was like, whoa, worth, worth a deeper look now. Small caveat for the listeners here. Nothing on the show is investment advice. We've heard that people might like to hear conversations like this. But you'd obviously have to do your due diligence here because this is really off the cuff for us. Yeah. Um, so don't take this as gospel. All right. You got anything else? No. Thanks so much for listening. Please hit us up with a review on iTunes. Um, that'd really help us out, help more people hear the show. We're obviously at Skippy and Dougals on Twitter and Skippy and Dougals at gmail.com. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, guys.